the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Alien enters Great British Baking Show but fails miserably when it overproofs Earth, leading to a soggy bottom and raw metal with very uneven layers. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk to multiple Hugo and Nebula award-winning science fiction author Nancy Cress about her new novel, the Eleventh Gate. This is a wonderful blend of space opera and quantum physics science fiction speculation brought together as only Nancy Cress can do it. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now, here's the news. The May mass market paperbacks are blooming up a storm at booksellers. These include The Gordian Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. When Dr. Benjamin Schroeder starts having visions of an alternate reality in which a second world war breaks out, he writes it off as a psychotic episode. That is, until a man knocks on his door with an impossible and horrifying story. It's a story about alternate realities, time travel, and temporal knots. Also in mass market format now is A Witch in Time by William Mark Simmons. As founder of After Dark Investigations, half-vampire Christopher Chesky has seen his fair share of the seedy side of the supernatural world. Now Interpol is interested in some of his associations with Vlad Dracul's grandson, better known as Dracula and a trio of witches from Greek myth want him dead. And for good this time. Finally out in May is By Demons Possessed by P.C. Hodgel. When news arrives from the vast city of Titastagon, James North, the avatar of that which destroys itself, uh, her personal god, knows she is the only thing standing between the city and the coming darkness. It seems many in the vast lower town have lost their shadows. Not so funny when you realize that a shadow is something cast by a soul in this world, which means something is taking and destroying souls in the city. By Demons Possessed by P.C. Hodgel, A Witch in Time by William Mark Simmons, and The Gordian Protocol by David Weber and Jacob Hollow, are now available in mass market format at booksellers everywhere. And by the way, that means the ebook price has dropped as well, so go get them. Have a lovely, flowery bouquet of May reading. Want to welcome Nancy Crest to the podcast. Hey, Nancy. Hey, Tony. It's wonderful to have you on board at, at Bain with a with a new novel. Um, Nancy Cress is the author of 33 books, including 26 novels, four collections of short stories, and three books on writing. Probably more by the since this was written. 
Uh, her work has won six Nebulas, two Hugos, a Sturgeon, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, and has been translated into uh, two dozen languages, including Klingon. In addition to writing, uh, Nancy also often teaches at various venues around the country and abroad, including a visiting lectureship at the University of Leipzig, a 2017 writing class in Beijing, and the annual intensive workshop Taos Toolbox, which she teaches every summer with Walter John Williams. She lives in Seattle. Um, and uh, she's, Nancy's just been a fixture of award-winning science fiction for, for a long time. And um, we have out now, um, at Booksellers Everywhere, The Eleventh Gate, um, a science fiction novel by Nancy Cress. Um, Nancy, what, uh, I guess we could just dive into the book and, and start talking about the background and what, what led you to uh, the initial uh, idea of writing this thing. It must have been space opera crossed with quantum physics somewhere because that's what the book's got in it. Well, you would start with a question to which I don't have an answer. I never really know what leads me to write any particular book. I have done space opera before with the probability series, but that was in the let's say, late 90s, early 2000s. And then I moved back into genetic engineering, which is what I usually write about. But the idea for this book came to me, as they so often do, out of some sort of, of blurry quantum superposition of all possibilities that exists out there. And the characters, which is what always grabbed me, had grabbed me. Specifically, the opening scene with Sloan. Um, I wanted to write about... Uh, a world, a, a federation of worlds, but it's not a very happy federation of worlds. There are eight planets, the eight known worlds, um, of which Earth is considered pretty much the older, spent, almost dead relative. It's been destroyed by climate change, and almost nobody lives there except for a couple diehards. But before the book opens, 150 or 200 years before it opens, the gates were discovered, stargates, two of them circulating the moon. They're very hard to find, but once they see them and go through them, they do connect them to other planets. And in this way, the 10 of these gates have been discovered that collect planets, connect planets which have then been settled by various groups with the money and the resources to flee Earth. Um, all of that is backstory. At the time that it opens, eight worlds are settled, and there are 10 gates, and then there's the discovery of an 11th gate. And this exacerbates all of the tensions that already exist between the various worlds and precipitates what almost nobody wanted, a war. However, you don't have to have everybody want to have a war. You only have to have the leaders want a war for their own reasons, and that's what happens. And these, the planets that are connected, this is one of the great mysteries of the book, that, um, is that they're Earth-like. Um, so everywhere we found, humans have been able to settle. The gates go. They don't know where the gates came from or who made them, and they don't know why they should only lead to these kinds of planets. But in the course of the book, they find out. But up till then, they don't know. They have no idea why this exists in the way that it does. But human beings, of course, don't have to understand something in order to exploit it. Exactly. So um, 
the way that this that things have evolved is that there are basically three social groups i guess you could you could, there are um the more authoritarian types there are the very libertarian types and there's there's uh the planet polyglot uh which is a, a mixture and it has nations the others are not nations they're ones owned by a corporation right planets don't have as much land mass as earth um especially um the two polyglot has more but the other two don't have as much and they've only been there people for 150 to 200 years and so what this means is they're not as densely populated or spread out as we are on earth and of course the groups that came were financed by people who could afford to do this think a collaboration between warren buffett and bill gates and jeff bezos there's the money and the ships to do it and they bring with them their governing systems or the governing systems they want to to put in place so you do have a sort of benevolent dictatorship in on one planet and again, it is benevolent. These people are not harsh. They really believe that a strong control is the best way to ensure everybody's welfare. The libertarian yeah. group, on the other hand, believes just the opposite. The best way to ensure everybody's welfare is to have almost no control whatsoever with an unbridled capitalism. Polyglot was the original plant, the original planet. And so a lot of different smaller groups that could afford just a few ships went there first and so you have a patchwork of nations much as we have on earth um each with their own particular histories and their own particular um political and religious systems so what you have here is a kind of artificial but that's what science fiction does in some ways laboratory for looking at various political and economic systems that sounds as though this isn't about people. It sounds like it's a monograph on political economy, but I hope that it isn't because actually, of course, all of this is embodied in characters who have their own desires and their own goals and their own achievements Absolutely. and their own plans, many of which go awry. Let's talk about characters in just a moment. Let's a little bit more on the, on the, on the uh, milieu. Um, so, you have uh you've named your libertarian planets galt and uh what's the other one there <laughs> they're right out of van rand oh it's called rand isn't it yes um and uh the authoritarian one is the it, it reminded me sort of of singapore in a way um in the way that you described it that's new california right that's a good comparison yes um the paraguays who control those planets are very interested in perpetuating what they consider the best of Earth culture. So they have named their planets New California, um, New Utah, and the libertarians have chosen all of their names from Ayn Rand, um, including gold. Mm -hmm. Except they do control a mining planet, little more, little more than a large asteroid, which has just been named New Hell because it's a terrible place to live and work, but it's where essential minerals come from. So if you want to go to New Hell, you can go and work there if you're a miner or you're willing to take triple hazard pay and a shortened lifespan. So let's talk about the characters then. So the uh, on New California, New Utah, um, this is controlled by the Paraguays, uh, particularly by the, the leader, Sloan, who we made at the very beginning of, of the novel. Tell us about Sloan and, and his family 
Um, and here's where some of your genetic engineering comes in, right? Yes, there's some he's genetic old. engineering here, yes. For, he is old. He's very old. But he he's, knows that he isn't going to last forever. And here's the problem with a benevolent dictatorship. Even when it is benevolent, even when it does advance your country or your planet um, in a good way, it tends to lead to dynasty. And dynasty doesn't guarantee that your heir will be just as competent as you are, or just as benevolent, in fact. And, and we see that over and over again in Earth history, where someone who has done well in governing, even if strictly, uh, a country, then dies and the heirs either go into squabbling over it, um, as Charlemagne's sons did, or they become an incompetent person, um, inherits it. Um, and that's what happens here. He has two daughters. His son died. Candace is completely incapable and uninterested. And so Sophia is the heir, essentially. But in order for for it to continue, Sophia needs to marry, and she's not much interested in this. He has one of his major captains who has become like a son to him, Luis Martinez, and his fondest hope is that Luis and Sophia will marry, and it looked like one point they would, but that didn't happen. And he is very concerned over what's going to happen afterwards. Sophia isn't all that young either. And the heir presumptive after that is a teenage girl who is very spoiled and most interested in raising genetically altered songbirds than anything else. And what is going to happen to this afterwards is one of his concerns. On the other hand, on the other planet, it's a libertarian planet, Rachel Landry has a, a plethora of heirs. She has five daughters, um, and they are falling into the other problem, um, which is who is going to inherit and control not the political system, because after all it's libertarian, but the corporations, the money is the power. Because you can say that a society is libertarian and equal, but there's always still nexuses of money and power. So those, there's already internal tensions simmering on each of these systems with, with polyglots sort of caught in the middle. It's the Switzerland of this world. It's trying very hard to remain neutral. So, but there are internal term, um, tensions and there are external tensions. And then this 11th gate is discovered. And nobody knows what's behind the 11th gate. And when they find out, and I'm not going to say, and I hope you're not either because I want people to read this book. Oh, no. But that pretty much <laughs> changes everything. Yeah. No, we cannot, of course, reveal what is beyond the 11th gate. The other strand that interested me, in addition to um, power dynamics, which is one of the major things this book is about, the other thing that it's about, though, is transcendence, mystical transcendence. Can you wed that with quantum physics and the sort of cloud of superimposed possibilities that is with the quantum foam until it's observed? We know yeah. that there are no such things as particles at a quantum level until they're observed. It's, there are merely probability waves. How high up does that go? And can you use that to create a sort of mysticism that transcends just the subatomic particle level? I wanted to deal with that, too, in a fictional sort of way. So that's the other strand that goes into it. Power dynamics and mysticism. 
Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you quote uh, Eddington and uh, Heisenberg several times throughout as, as regards this idea. Um, and you sort of embody it in Philip Anderson. Uh, I think we could talk a little bit about Philip and his experience and what is driving him. Yeah, Philip is is a, one of those, he's trained as a biologist and he works for an environmental organization on polyglot. But that's how he earns his living. His, in another place, in another era, at another time, he probably would have become a monk or a mystic, one of those guys that goes out in the desert and fasts until he is so emaciated he manages to attain some sort of, of um, mystical mysticism, mystical state brought on by, by um, probably starvation and other things. But he's not. He's an educated scientist. He wants to see, he wants desperately for the universe to make sense. Not only in a physical sense, in a scientific sense, but to make sense in a transcendent sense. Science has a lot to say about how the the universe functions. It doesn't have as much to say, if anything, about why it functions. Why is it here? Why is there something instead of nothing, as physicists say? Um, We don't have an answer to that. Even if you trace back modern physics to the Big Bang, why did the Big Bang happen? We don't, we don't know. We don't have an answer as to why it's there. That's what Philip wants to know. There are people like this. There are not a lot of them. But there are people like this who are willing to devote their entire life to the search for some kind of meaning in the grandest sense. Not, not the simpler existential meanings of meaning is what I create in my own life, but what is the meaning of the entire damn cosmos? Um, there are people mm-hmm. like that, and Philip is one of them. People like that have always fascinated me. What is it specifically that Philip has, that, what experience is he trying to recapture? Um, it, it happens early on in the book. I don't think we're giving anything away by talking about it a little transcendent mystical moment when he was young um, where it just seems to him and and people do have these moments monks who are trained in in um, meditation can even have them not at will but almost at will Um, and there are brain changes in the blood flow in the brain that are connected with this which makes it a chicken and egg thing if you feel that you're having an out-of-body experience is it because the blood flow in that part of your body that defines the edges of your body um, has changed? Or has the blood flow changed because you are having a mystical experience? Either way, he had one, very briefly, when he was young, where he felt himself leaving his body, not in an astral projection sense, looking down on himself or anything, but leaving entirely and merging with whatever the underlying substrate of meaning is in the universe um i know people who have had those those experiences very briefly and they're not all buddhist monks it's not a thing that you can recapture at will and in fact most of the people i know who have had them never have another one (laughs) but philip wants to find out what it was and can he have it again he's looking for that merging of himself with whatever the underlying meaning of the universe is. And again, there are people like that out there. There aren't a lot of them, but there are some. But he moves in a world of power dynamics, of 
potential interplanetary war, of the usual scramble, human scramble for the allocation of resources, all of the things that we all live with every day. Um, so he has to reconcile those two things, or he has to leave one or the other behind. Yeah, and he gets mixed up with not uh, not because it's his fault with the Galts, because the Rachel Galt, who is the CEO of of everything, um, has a granddaughter named Tara, who's a little bit obsessed with him, right? Yes. Doesn't sex always change everything? Tara, Tara is sexually obsessed with Philip, yes. She's not a very balanced young woman. She's an extremely unbalanced young woman. And she has fixated on Philip with all of the tenacity that all of the Landrys are capable of. But in her case, um, it's being bent to this end. She is not the heroine. Um, if anyone here is a heroine of the book, it's either Rachel or her daughter Caroline. Um, her granddaughter, Caroline. Tara's actually her great-granddaughter. Um, but it's Tara is, again, a believable type, where you find people who become so fixated on somebody else that they are willing to um, stalk them, even commit violence to possess them. And that's Tara. And that becomes, she becomes the little match that gets put to the tinder of all of this explosive situation. Yeah. Well, she brings Rachel. Ra- Rachel, I would call this Rachel's book with a little Sloan and uh, and and the other Landry's mixed in, um, it, and she brings Rachel in contact with Philip Anderson as a result, and Rachel gets an idea of of this quantum uh, stuff that's going on. So there's there is Sophia, who is uh, Sloan's daughter. Who's, who's kind of war-minded, and then Rachel, our, uh, the head of the Libertarians, she has a daughter who's, who's fairly uh, war-minded as well, granddaughter, uh, Jane, Jane, right, yeah, but, uh, and... And the other point of view character is Luis Martinez, who is a captain in the fleet, I mean, he's a soldier, for the Paraguays, yeah but who is more balanced than either of those two women. And all of them come together um, to deal with this war or non-war or potential for war. Yeah. So tell us what starts the war, because even uh, you don't have to know what's on the other side of the gate to know something about the, 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 the fight that goes on. Yeah, the war is what, what war always is, because people get greedy. They decide they want more. They decide they want more control. They want more territory. They want more resources. Um, neither of these planets, at least not in the people from the people at the top who are making the decisions, are in any way suffering shortages. But most of the wars on Earth have been caused either over ideologies like religion or else because people wanted more. Um, Napoleon wanted Russia. Why not? He's got a lot of other territory, but there's always room for more. So that's, that's another thing that gets thrown into there, yes. The war itself is mostly fought in space because it's unthinkable that they could take the war to the surface of a planet with biologi- genetically altered biological weapons until at some point it doesn't become unthinkable. Shades of uh, present day. <laughs> problems. But, uh, 
<laughs> written before yeah. we had present day problems. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I feel like I'm I'm um, trying to sketch everything that went into the book, but it's a long novel, and I'm hoping that these things weave together more coherently than I'm than I'm expressing them right now. Oh sure, sure, sure. Well, we just give them a taste. The um and the the other thing I want to ask you about is the the tech. Um, what is what's what are the spaceships like? How do they go places? Um, and what are the weapons like? You know, this is something Bane readers care about. So let's let's delve into it momentarily. They do have um, I guess you a faster than light travel, or otherwise you couldn't get around very much. Um, but only through the gates. Otherwise, they can move at a high percentage of light, but they can't exceed it. So this means that travel between planets um, can take weeks or even months. The gates orbit pretty close into the planet. So if you go through a gate from Earth, say, to Polyglot, and you emerge, then you are in orbit roughly where the moon would be now, and it's not that long to get down with the shuttle. But if you're going across space to get to planets... Um, it becomes a whole other thing. And in fact, there's only one place you can do it, and that's from a small planet um, that's way, way out on the edge, um, which doesn't really belong to anybody. Nominally, it belongs to Polyglot, but since there's nothing there except a scientific research station, uh, most people aren't much interested in it. But you can get to a couple of the other Paraguay worlds from there, but it will take months, and that becomes important too. The weapons are beam weapons that they also have torpedoes which are old-fashioned but they have them aboard and then they have beam weapons which have a limited range and essentially are um, laser weapons that can hit something and then another weapon is invented that goes beyond that and I don't want to uh, talk about that because I would give too much of the plot away you wrote a uh, precursor story to this for the website. You want to talk about that a little bit? It's it's called uh, it's called Paraguay's Wolves, right? I'm trying to remember the name without looking. The, it, it is a prequel. The opening line to the novel is, the wolves need a dusting again. Um, a sentence of which I'm actually very fond. Sloan Paraguay in his office on, on um, New California has a pair of wolves, earth wolves, which he had brought to there, to um, to New California in the hopes of breeding them and trying to have this gorgeous animal as part of the new environment. It didn't work. They were not adaptable enough, and he tried to genetically reproduce them, and that didn't work either. So he has these two stuffed wolves, the only ones of their kind that are on anywhere on the eight worlds other than Earth, um, in his office as a reminder that families and species need to stay strong or they may go extinct. Um, that's the first line of the book. Then short story, Paraguay's Wolves, goes back to the capture of those wolves on Earth. The Earth has degenerated and there's almost nobody left on it, but there are some people. And one of them is a man living in what used to be Alaska. Um, he was a biologist also, and he's studying wolves, even though he's alone there, because you have to do something, even if you're alone, and keeping records of the remaining wolves. 
And a young hunter, a young woman, comes to Earth to capture these pair of wolves for Sloan. She's a hired hunter. And it's about the interactions between the old man and the young hunter and the wolves, none of which ends the way either of the two humans expected it to. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good uh, sort of, yeah, and it's free, of course, at the Bain.com website and available in um, Free Short Stories 2020, Free Stories 2020, which is an ebook download that uh, that we have available at, at Bain eBooks um, perpetually. You can get that story, and it'll give you a real good taste of uh, taste of the of of the book. Um, it will and it won't, because although it deals with the wolves, um, very little, almost none of the the novel is set on Earth. So in a way, this prequel is not typical of the way the novel goes. It's not about space war. It's not about ships. It's not about power dynamics. Or it is about power dynamics only, and because all human interactions at some level are about power dynamics. But it's um, it's a prequel that sets the stage, even though in many ways it's not typical of the novel itself. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's got cool Nancy Cress ideas in it. That's what I mean. <laughs> so it'll give you, <laughs> it'll give you that kind of taste, uh, taste of it. Um, so uh, I guess the other, the thing that struck me most is the parallel it is among the characters. All right. So it's, the main thing is, is it's what, be, what is beyond the gate will, of course, determine the outcome for a lot of this but the parallels between the families um is is interesting you got sue lynn and on one side sue lynn paragoy and you got tara the crazy girl obsessive on the other and they're both sort of mirror you know it's the is it inevitable that a family has a competent um child an inspired descendant and uh, a crazy descendant <laughs> because that's sort of what both the the um, Landrys and the Paragoys have. Most families do do. I once read an interesting theory, and I never saw it elaborated, <laughs> so I'm not sure if it's true. But it says that the weakest child, emotionally and in terms of competence in a family, that child's weakest child, <clears throat> and then the third generation's weakest child will be really weak. And probably will not breed. And I don't know if that's true, but that's what's going on here. There are a lot of competent Paragoys, and there are a lot of competent Landrys. But these are the two sprigs that ended up at the weekend. And what's science fictionally interesting about that here is that the the ancestors are still around because everyone's so extraordinarily long lived. So you can actually live to see what the third and fourth generation of your progeny is, right? Well, you don't even have to be all that um, enhanced to do that. My father, who was 95, um, welcomed his first great-grandchild a year ago. Hmm. And since I suspect my father's going to outlive all of us, he'll see this child grow to be, at least I hope, five or ten more years <laughs> yeah sure or you could just be southern like me and uh you know my great-grandmother was around for a long time because you know she had my grandmother when she was 16 so <laughs> that's the other way to do it <laughs> so uh what are, what are you working on now what are uh, your projects 
Well, I don't. I never like to talk about work in project in progress, but I am. It sort of jinxes it. But oh, I am working out. on another novel. This so, one is a near future, a near future on Earth. So it's the entirely, in some ways, the opposite of Eleventh Gate. I, I tend to bounce around a lot between different subgenres in science fiction. I know people who have planned their careers meticulously and built a brand with the same kinds of books. Um, so that they attract the same kinds of followers. But I have unfortunately never been one of these people. If I had been, I probably would be richer than I am. But as it happens, I write whatever it is that I really, really am excited about writing at that moment, even if it doesn't fit with what I just finished writing before. And it almost never does. The How do you balance the teaching and how does that come into your work? Well, I like teaching. I was trained as a teacher. After college, a million years ago, I started out as a fourth grade teacher, and I taught to fourth grade for four years. Um, I like teaching, and now I like teaching writing to adults. It doesn't take up a lot of the year because Taos is two weeks. Taos Toolbox that I teach with Walter John Williams is two weeks in the summer, plus another week of intense critiquing beforehand because I write the critiques for the first week. Um, and line edit to 10,000 words per student for 18 students and write critiques for them the week before. So that that knocks out about a month, essentially. But other than that, the teaching that I do tends to be smaller workshops, weekends, or something along those lines. And it doesn't cut that much into the writing time. I like doing it because, first of all, I like seeing the talent that's coming out and helping along if I can. And secondly, I think it keeps your own writing sharp to talk about with people who are encountering some of these ideas for the first time, what makes a story work? What do you need for structure? What do you need for characters? Um, How can prose be improved? How can you make the reader see what it is that you're seeing in your mind as you're writing this story? Um, I think all of that has a carryover into the writer's own work. Um, besides, I just like it. Mm-hmm. Running, as you know, well, is a solitary uh, occupation. It's nice to, to actually be interacting with other people in an intimate sort of way. Definitely. Yeah. Well, you have uh, you've put all this into practice once again, and uh, the Eleventh Gate by Nancy Cress is now at booksellers. Um, and Nancy, uh, thank you so much for talking with us about the book and its ideas. Yes. Thank you for the opportunity, Tony. I enjoyed it. Take care. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has won the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington 
is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Forge One. Refuge System. I'm impressed, Admiral, Sonia Hempel said, as she and Admiral Shannon Forker stepped out of the lift car and walked down a short passageway. Forker's yeoman popped to attention as they entered the Admiral's outer office. She waved a casual hand at him, but he held the position and cut his eyes briefly sideways to his superior's guest. The pause in Forker's stride was barely perceptible, but then she cleared her throat. At ease, Jean-Louis, she said. He dropped into something rather more like parade rest, and Hempel stifled an inappropriate urge to giggle. Her own career was checkered with occasional lapses in military punctilio. In her own case, she acknowledged, they usually had something to do with losing her temper with someone who seemed to have become part of the problem instead of the solution. She'd been forced to admit, indeed she'd recognized at the time, that tantrums were often counterproductive, and she'd worked on her temper for decades. Really, she had. And it helped that so many, not all, but many of the causes she'd championed since King Roger had instituted Project Graham had paid off handsomely in the war against the People's Republic. Partly, that was because people tended to argue with her less, which she discovered wasn't always a good thing. More of it, though, she'd come to realize, was because she no longer had to prove herself to herself. The truth, she discovered, was that quite a lot of her more youthful anger had been directed at the fact that she hadn't been certain she was on the right track herself. She'd known exactly how badly the Star Kingdom needed some sort of technological equalizer against the stupendous People's Republic. It had been her job to find one, and her anger had been directed as much at her own never-admitted uncertainty as it had been at the obstinacy of those arguing with her. The tree cat on her shoulder made a soft sound and patted her right cheek with a gentle true hand, and her eyes softened. Hunt silently had assigned himself as her bodyguard when Sphinx's tree cat population decided it was time to provide bodyguards for the two legs fighting to protect Sphinx and all the rest of the Star Empire's planets against the enemies behind the Yawada strike. That attack had massacred an entire tree cat clan, and as the cats themselves had put it, they knew how to deal with evildoers. The telepathic tree cats also knew about the way in which humans had been turned into programmed assassins and their ability to sense the unwilling killer's horror and panic when the programming took control made them the only defense against them anyone had yet discovered. Quite a lot of the Grand Alliance's leadership, Sonia Hempel among them, had acquired furry, adorable, highly intelligent, and very, very deadly protectors as a consequence of the cat's decision. What she hadn't fully appreciated was the speed with which Hunt Silently would become, perhaps, the closest friend she'd ever had and she was pretty sure he'd had more than a little to do with her ability to understand the roots of the anger, which had been so much a part of her for so long, too. Shannon Foraker's lapses in military formality, on the other hand, stemmed from very different causes. In certain key aspects of her life, Admiral Foraker was the most focused, intense individual Hempel had ever met, herself included. Outside those key aspects, however, she often seemed to inhabit a different universe. Despite that, or because of it, perhaps, her staff and subordinates were utterly devoted to her. It was rather touching to see the determination of people like Senior Chief Jean-Louis Jackson 
to protect her against the sort of lapses in formality which might embarrass her in front of her, no doubt, supercilious, judgmental Manticoran guests. Hempel's thoughts carried her through the hatch into Foraker's inner office aboard Forge One, the oldest and largest of the four major space stations orbiting the planet of Sanctuary. They'd just completed a guided tour of the enormous platform, and she'd been deeply impressed by what the Republic of Haven and the Sanctuarians had accomplished. Individually, Forge One and its three consorts were little more than a quarter as large as Manticore's Hephaestus or Vulcan had once been. But the four of them together exceeded even Hephaestus's solo output. In many ways, that was what Hemphill found most impressive about Project Bolthole, because Haven had managed to build that capacity from scratch with a substantially less capable tech base, and in only four decades. Of course, the woman whose office they'd just entered had spent the last several T years working to make that tech base one hell of a lot more capable than she'd found it. Foraker waved at the comfortable conversational area in one corner of the spacious compartment. The chairs, coffee table, and couch were arranged in a semicircle, facing a waterfall that poured down across a cascade of natural stone into an oval 3.5-meter pool. A flash of color caught Hempel's eye as a spectacularly striped and banded fish with long feather-like fins. She wondered if the species was native to haven or to sanctuary, leapt briefly above the pool's rippling surface. Sit down, please, Baroness. Forker almost managed to conceal her grimace at having almost forgotten to add Hempel's aristocratic title, and the Manticoran chuckled. Forker looked at her as they sat, and she shook her head. Don't worry about any baronesses or miladies, Admiral Foraker, she said as Hunt silently flowed down to curl in her lap. They're not necessary, and I don't usually use my title back home anyway. You don't? Forker sounded a bit relieved, and Hempel chuckled again. I suppose I really should, but I've been plain old Sonia Hempel for a lot of years. I don't have time for much of a social life, and I'm not that interested in politics, so I've never taken my seat in the Lords. I let one of my cousins sit there with my proxy, she shrugged. Besides, Low Delhi's basically just a 1% arc of the Gorgon Belt in Manticore B. That comes to about 3.1 quadrillion cubic kilometers. But those kilometers contain an awful lot of empty space. Mind you, some of the rocks floating around in it are pretty valuable. But I think its total population was 920 or maybe it was 21 the last time I looked. And most of my subjects are asteroid miners who could give tree cats stubborn lessons. She gave another shrug, then smiled. Besides, I think the two of us will be working closely enough. It should probably be Sonia and Shannon, at least in private. Oh, good, Foraker sighed, then looked contrite. Sorry. That didn't come out just the way I wanted. I suppose they warned you I'm not real good about the social stuff. I think you can assume the odd word or two of caution was dropped into my ear, Hemphill said wryly. Should I assume the same sort of words were dropped into your ear about me? Actually, the word Admiral Lewis used in your case was touchy, I think. Foraker's tone was even drier than Hempel's had been, 
and Hunt silently laughed as the two of them sat back and smiled broadly at one another. To quote a line from one of Duchess Harrington's favorite ancient entertainment holovid, Shannon, I think this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship, the Manticoran said. So, from our analyst's perspective, it looks to me like we're in pretty good shape right now, Sonia Hempel said much later that night, sitting across the supper table from Foraker with an after-dinner glass of brandy in hand. I doubt the Sollies fully appreciate the powered ranges our MDMs can reach. We've tried hard enough to keep them from figuring it out at any rate and I'm almost positive they can't really appreciate the accuracy Apollo makes possible at those ranges. That doesn't mean they don't feel a desperate need to increase their own ranges, but until they can figure out how to build multiple impeller rings into the same missile body, they won't be able to match our performance. And as far as we can tell, and we've had a really good look inside their current tech, thanks to Villareta, they're only a little ahead of where we were 20 years ago at First Yeltsin on the Grav Pulse comms. Forker sipped from the cup of coffee in her own hand and nodded slowly. The two of them had spent the last several hours bringing one another up to speed, in general terms at least, on Bolthole's actual capacity and their separate R&D program's current projects. That's probably true, she said now, and given how long it took us to reverse engineer the splitter technology, even after we acquired a few specimens to work from, I doubt they'll figure it out next week. But I think everyone needs to remember the Solarian League has plenty of really capable scientists and engineers. And the fact that they already know we can do it will give their researchers an enormous leg up. Agreed. Agreed. Empel nodded back much more vigorously. Our current estimate is that it ought to take them at least a couple of years, more probably three or four, bearing in mind that we're pretty sure they haven't acquired any samples, but we're well aware that it's only a guesstimate, and that it might be overly optimistic. I think it's going to take them a lot longer to match Apollo, though. Probably, Foraker said again. I hope you won't take this the wrong way, but it's always seemed to me that you Manticorans have a tendency to build in what one of my staffers calls all the bells and whistles. She smiled wryly. Mind you, if I had as many whistles and bells as you people do, I'd damned well build them in myself. But that hasn't been the case for us, which is why Five gave me that a couple of years ago. She waved her cup at an old-fashioned frame on the bulkhead. It contained a quotation from Anonymous, and Hemphill had smiled as she read it earlier. Perfect is the mortal enemy of good enough, it said. That's what we had to bear in mind for years after the head start you people got on us, Foraker said very seriously. If we'd waited until we'd figured out how to duplicate everything you were doing to us, we'd never have gotten anything done. Not in time to do us any good anyway. We haven't exactly waited until we were convinced everything was perfect before we committed it to action ourselves, Hempel pointed out. No, I'm sure you haven't, but my point is really looking from the perspective of the technological underdog, let's say. We couldn't do the things you were doing the way you did them 
So we had to figure out how to do what was good enough to let us at least stay in shouting range. And I'd like to think that every so often we handed you a surprise or two of our own. Oh, you certainly did that. Hemphill shook her head. There were quite a few surprises along the way, like Moriarty and those donkey missile pods of yours. Exactly. Foraker set her cup down, folded her hands on the edge of the table, and leaned forward over them, her expression intent. Exactly, she repeated. You had the technological edge, both in weapons already in the pipeline and in terms of your basic infrastructure. We had the edge in sheer numbers and size of infrastructure, but we were well behind you in terms of deployed technology, and even further in terms of the educational system, which might have let us recoup our disadvantage. But the Solarian League is huge, even bigger in relative terms compared to the entire Grand Alliance than the People's Republic was compared to the original Star Kingdom. It's got the biggest, most broadly dispersed manufacturing infrastructure in the entire galaxy. Despite the situation on many of the Fringe and Verge planets, and a couple of the core worlds, let's be honest here, it has a first-rate educational system. And outside its warfighting hardware, its applied tech is about as good as it gets. I think you people clearly have the edge in several critical areas, but outside FTL bandwidth, that edge is pretty damned thin, and I'm willing to bet there are areas in which they have the edge if they just sit down, take a deep breath, and think about it. And when they do that, if they decide to settle for good enough instead of holding out for perfect, if they do, God only knows what they'll come up with as an equalizer. Hempel finished for her when she allowed her voice to trail away. The Manticoran Admiral's expression was grim as she recalled the Janicek Admiralty's hubris and what that had cost the Royal Manticoran Navy in dead ships and personnel. That's exactly what I'm worried about, Shannon Foraker said quietly. Given their performance to date, it's tempting to think every Sally's an idiot, but they aren't. And if some of those non-idiots convince the mandarins to listen to them, our current technological edge could disappear a lot sooner than anyone wants to think it could. That was another entry in the complete serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a suspended cloud of celestial possibilities waiting to be observed and turned into either giant donuts or the tears of orphan planets pining for their sons. Plus, thanks and praise for Nancy Cress author of The Eleventh Gate. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.